Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In Podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week, we're doing things slightly different. We're joined by two surgeons. I probably don't need to give an instruction to them. They're super famous in the arena of Meded. But it's our pleasure to invite onto the show both John and Paul, who are the founder of Smile Lectures. John's a urology registrar working in Plymouth. Um, having graduated from Peninsula Med School and Paul is an orthopaedic teaching fellow. He is a fellow GKT alumni, which I'm super chuffed about. We've always got a soft (laughs) spot for the GKT chaps. Um, Both have a keen interest in medical education. John's an advocate for boxing, cooking, film. Paul, you know, fitness, music, current affairs, which kind of makes sense since he's an orthopaedic trainee. (laughs) <laughs> um, I haven't seen you, Paul, so I imagine you're like a, a six foot tall, super bulky chap. Um, but yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for coming on to the show. Pleasure. Great to be here. So there's so much we want to talk about, um, but we thought we will start with the COVID pandemic um, and kind of the inception of Smile. Mm-hmm. We kind of want to get into your head and kind of hear your journey or your story of how smile came about why did it come about and what you both managed to achieve by the end um of its run during the covid pandemic so if you're happy to share that we're yeah. more than happy to hear sure so if i talk about the beginning you're only the middle and we'll share the end <laughs> um so i think one of the things that people probably don't see a lot of was a lot of doctors were obviously changed their jobs so uh, you'd see orthopods going and working on ICU. You'd see A&E doctors or acute care doctors working every hour under the sun. But uh, for a lot of surgical trainees, um, they were working actually a bit less. So to be honest, we were put, uh, I was taken off urology and stuck on general surgery, but spent a lot of time, effectively what I describe as on the bench. So if someone got sick, you get a phone call at short notice and be expected to go to work. Or if, um, if or basically, you know, you'd be just doing something else. But I found myself quite bored and I always quite liked teaching. Um, I had a few PowerPoints ready to go on my laptop, stuck them on the Exeter Surgical Society Drive and a few other places and just started doing some basic urology lectures to about 40 people. Uh, Through the miraculous wonders of social media, I think that spiralled out of control quite quickly to (laughs) thousands of people. Uh, I still can't... I think, to be honest, if I could tell you exactly how it went from A to B that quickly, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you other than, say, social media. Um, mm. But then that turned into a big thing. Then very quickly, Paul and Montasha got involved, I think probably after like lecture two, and we realised we might have something, and uh, it kind of changed the face of it. It was really quite fun. Do you want to talk about the middle bit? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it grew out of nothing, and it was very unexpected. Mm. Um, and And I think that part of the reason was just students were really crying out for something to do um, and and they were worried about their education being being interrupted and and the great you know the great thing about how we live at the moment is is that we are in communication with each other and word can spread quite quickly um, and so I think we just we, we were lucky to have a really good network of um, uh, of excellent medical educators um, who are, you know, friends from medical school or from from previous jobs, uh, who were keen to teach and um, kind of started like that, and then people came to us, which was quite a nice feeling. Yeah. You know, we get messages from other 
uh, platforms, or we go on Twitter and stalk people and beg them to come do things. Yeah. <laughs> that works as well. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually, it, um, uh, it, you know, really, we, we were just the facilitators um, <clears throat> rather than actually delivering the content ourselves a, a lot of the time, which was uh, which is really interesting. Yeah, and then yeah. towards the end, I think we we like I said at the beginning, we had no idea it was going to turn into what it did. And our, I, I, I think both of our all of our bosses were incredibly supportive for the long run. Our girlfriend started off quite supportive, and then <laughs> I, I can pinpoint it was a le- about lecture one hundred and two. Uh, I think <laughs> it was starting to be you know two lectures a day, uh, sitting there being quite loud <laughs> on the webcam for hours. Um, we realised that we couldn't keep. It was completely. Un- it was a completely unsustainable model. Um, <laughs> it naturally, you know, I, I, I call I call it the the Cummings Gate time. So when Dominic, Dominic Cummings drove to the castle, you can see the number of viewers mm. started to slip because people realised could go outside again. Um, yeah. After that, we started to realise. All right, let's try and work out a way to lay it down and to end it. And it worked really well. I say end it, but end it in the format we were mm. doing initially and it was a really nice way to end it sat there in bikinis drinking champagne um yeah. charity money so um yeah. yeah good fun it was really good i mean uh, you guys you guys taught over twenty thousand students isn't it what were the numbers like uh i, th- I think in terms of the overall platform that we had uh yeah nearly nearly twenty thousand um not mm. far off that and um yeah i mean certainly uh, I think in terms of attendances at every lecture, it's certainly a lot more than you'd get, even even at uh, GKT, um, yeah, lectures, oh. <laughs> you know, where you might get you know four hundred people into um, um, into yeah. lecture theatre. But four hundred uh, people. Oh yeah, yeah that's bloody a hell. Biggest medical school in West. Four fifty. Four fifty. That's what you, you left out the other fifty now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, certainly it's it's an interesting experience teaching to that many people at once. Um, yeah, and uh, and you know all of our lecturers really stepped up to the to the plate and um, and took that challenge on. And despite the fact that none of us had ever done anything like this before, but then, yeah. well, the thing was it was it was quite new, wasn't it? I mean, if if anyone pre-COVID had said what Zoom, no one, had, you know, I don't know, I didn't I, know about Zoom. I have to say, I bit, I did uh, think that we were still stuck in the era of you know sort of you might use Skype to call someone in Australia if um, yeah. and, it, and it would take half <laughs> to log on and uh, you'd never be able to have more than one person per uh, per call. No. So uh, I was amazed really when I when I saw the uh, the the way that the technology was. It's come on such a lot. Since, mm. uh, I think I did one pub quiz with my mates from home and, and actually that was another one of the points where I thought, hold on, this works. So when you started to do it through Zoom, Mm-hmm. What were some of the challenges were when you sort of compare and contrast teaching sort of live in front of the students versus doing it through Zoom? So one of the things that, you know, was very difficult was, and this happened a few times when we were trying to recruit people to do it, you'd say, do you mind doing these lectures? And then a couple of friends and I didn't even explain to them what they were. They said, I've heard about these lectures. I'm not lecturing to a thousand people. <laughs> uh, people, were t- people were quite scared of it. And not seeing mm. your audience had its benefits and its it had its pros and cons so i think yeah I, i'm quite confident speaking to people but if you stuck me in a room of a thousand people i would probably cower yeah i could say whatever yeah. i want you know over a smile it, it felt very different mm-hmm. now the difficulty was trying to engage the difficulty throughout all of that was you know i was i went to peninsula medical school the best medical school in the country and uh, 
doesn't actually exist anymore. I was going to say, it's so good it's not there anymore. Falls on our side here. But it was a big proponent of the problem-based learning, the small group learning, all this kind of jazz. And uh, yeah. I was a big fan of that. And it definitely worked. So I always felt a bit odd saying, all right, so we've gone from the eight people in a PBL group to a thousand people discussing this. Mm. Um, and the only thing I can, only advice I can give people similarly, if they're doing that, is use your technology as best you can to treat it as much as you can, like a classroom. You can have little mm. people raise their blue hands to answer questions. You can use the Q&A so people can answer questions. You don't need to make it a didactic, um, didactic lecture. You can make it an interactive piece, even with thousands of people. You need to understand the technology and have people working with you. You can't do it by yourself. So you need to have the moderators. Yeah, I think I think that we um, uh, we very much developed with the uh, with the platform. Um, certainly, when we first started out, it was it was quite intimidating. But actually, towards the end. Um, it felt extremely comfortable for us and, uh, and I think for a lot of our regular lecturers. And um, and now, so now I've gone back to face-to-face teaching as part of my job and, and actually I find that very um, weird somehow to uh, <laughs> doing that. It's, it sounds strange, but um, I'm, you know, relaxing back into it again, but certainly it's mm. very different to um, to what I've been used to for the last however many months. And I think other, other challenges really that we were facing was... Um, just keeping up with the growth of the platform um, because again we weren't expecting it to take off the way it did and yeah. um, certainly while we were sort of we were struggling for a bit for um, for funding and for sort of assistance mm. really in trying to develop the platform and, and certainly earlier on I think everyone was so all the universities and the companies were so preoccupied with trying to you know get on top of their own get their own house in order that um, yeah. the last thing they wanted to do was to to help out a uh, you know um, a couple of nobodies really. But that, and, that being said, the University of Exeter did help us out. They well, that, that's it. They so were later, very so, so later so later on. Once um, I think once things are settled down a bit for everyone else, then we certainly did get a lot of assistance. But um, uh, certainly in the early days, it was difficult trying to keep up with the growth in numbers, and mm. and we we found. Mm probably about a month in when we started maxing out the zoom um account that we could afford um that yeah we still couldn't afford it <laughs> yeah yeah i say afford <laughs> we put on a credit card yeah. and, uh, and uh, <laughs> pay off at some later date <laughs> yeah. hmm. problem for future john and paul yeah um yeah i was gonna say two things pretty what you said really it was uh it was quite nice to watch the growth of the facilitators the best one of the best memories i have in the entire thing is um well, uh, one of the facilitators was terrified. She's a very good friend. She was doing one of the introduction to ITU sessions, and uh, mm. she was the first person to hit a thousand people. And I was oh, wow, wow. Physically, physically, you know, quite nervous at the beginning, a little bit shaky. Did a great lecture. It was absolutely fantastic. And I was slowly watching the numbers go up to a thousand. <laughs> and then she came back to the lecture like three, uh, three, another three lectures, I think. And to watch the transformation from lecture one to lecture three or four, whatever it was, it was amazing. It was like a completely different yeah. person. Um, and I just thought that was great. And then going on from the other thing you were saying, Paul, about comparing the virtual teaching to face-to-face teaching. I've only done two mm. face-to-face teaching sessions since we started Smile. And I found mm. um, that doing it since then, uh, I have become, I was definitely a lot more comfortable talking in front of people. Um, and I think my teaching style has adapted where I felt like I was still talking to a thousand people. 
Um, I don't oh, know what you thought, like, oh, okay. the contrast and the change was. Yeah, I, I just, um, I have to say, I, I didn't realise how nice it was not being able to see how many people are going to sleep in the middle of your lecture. Cameras just get turned off. The of how good your, uh, yeah. your, your style is, is... Um, yeah, it's a bit of a wake up call, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been it's so, been it's been nice getting back to face to face teaching. But I think there's okay. um, uh, I I'd love to think that there's a role for both really in um, going forward now. There's going to have to be. Yeah, and it kind of brings me on to my next question. So, what does the future hold for Smile? You know, is, is there going to be a Smile Med School propping up somewhere? <laughs> um, what does the future hold, bearing in mind that you are both surgeons? Um, and I want to kind of touch on that later. Well, the honest truth is we're not completely sure yet. Um, (laughs) We're we're thinking about a lot of things and we certainly want to, um, I I think there's definitely a role for Smile to play. And Mm -hmm. uh, the real question is how much time can we dedicate to it? Obviously our careers have to um, take somewhat of a a front step at the moment. Mm. Um, Yeah. But uh, but certainly, if people want us to to be there, we'd love to be to be a part of the medical education scene. Yeah, we're currently trying to wrap Definitely. up all the things that we did. Like one of the things that we wanted to get out of this, and we realised it was good, was get some papers out of it, do a few presentations, which we've got things that's going in that direction now, which is nice. Um, we're also it's also quite nice to do things like this. Uh, we've been involved yeah, with the yeah. medal and uh, a few other platforms, and then a couple of local ones as well. I think at some point we'd like to do some uh, weekend sessions, but I think we're still finding our feet with the new jobs at the moment that we can't, um, you know, we're still trying. And Natasha's got her exams this year. So between the, yeah. a lot of that, no. it's a bit more challenging. Yeah. But there's definitely things in uh, in the pipeline. So watch yeah. the space. <laughs> I think the beauty of it is it showed so much scope and so much potential of the future of medical education. Mm. Um, and I think not only did the students benefit massively, it seems as both yourselves and the facilitators all kind of developed. Um, so that's current day. What makes, because I, I see you on Twitter, I see you on Instagram, I see you on all social media platforms. I see everyone's got an interest in medical education. And that's a beautiful thing in medicine. Everyone likes to sort of teach and pass on their learning points, the cases they've seen. What makes a good medical educator? You guys are clearly amazing educators that your first one or two lectures spread like wildfire and then you got everyone involved. And I think the, the lectures are known. Wherever you walk now, wherever I work, I see students that come up to me and say, hey, have you listened to this Smile lecture? <laughs> um, so yeah, tell us what makes a great medical educator. Uh, well, that's really, really kind of you to say. That's really <laughs> sweet. Um, I think one of the things that we made, made it work well was I think we're, we just kind of thought like students a lot of the time. <laughs> so what did we want to know? How do we ways to remember it? And then trying to keep it a bit more informal and we tried to keep it a bit fun. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, I think that we also knew what was relevant. And if, you know, I have never used the Krebs cycle practically as a doctor. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, We even taught that peninsula. We, went on, we weren't taught the anatomy of the lower leg. Uh, I think I think that's why you're not an anaesthetist, John. Yeah, quite possibly. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I think I think in general terms, um, and and speaking as really amateur medical educators, um, I think there are certain things that you've got to keep uh, in your mind, and one of them is not to overstep your your own knowledge. So we made 
very sure to not be teaching on things personally that we didn't have a really firm grasp over because it's very easy to get yourself into trouble and to you know pass on incorrect knowledge particularly in mm. subjects that are so complex as, as medicine and surgery mm. um, and it's incredibly important that any educator no matter whether you're teaching five students or you know a thousand um, that you don't pass on anything that you're not 100% sure of um, and and I think that the other thing that I learned was listen to your your audience mm. and um, mm. listen to what they want and um, and adapt your sessions accordingly and, and really listen to the feedback that you get because I think a lot of people we've got this big search for feedback it's like you say everyone everyone is a medical educator because it's part of our jobs you know educating students is part mm. of what we do and um, and as part of that we have to show evidence of that in our ARCPs and we have to all get feedback but how many people actually look at and learn from their feedback um, so I think that's you know those things are really important as a yeah. to become a good medical educator before Am's butted in and asked that <laughs> additional question uh, we want to get to know John and Paul pre-smile um, take us through that journey of the moment you realized that you wanted to be a doctor you wanted to be a surgeon um, kind of med school foundation training um, uh, and kind of share that with us uh, okay. I don't know how far you want to go back but uh, right, I'll try and do it a, a bit of a, pr a, brief, a brief briefly I mean I didn't know I wanted to be a doctor till I was told I couldn't be a doctor uh, I'm quite, oh, okay. I, I vividly remember getting I think I was in year nine of school and I always watched you know wanted to do something in Med, either medicine or technology or something like that and uh my mm. german teacher told me i'd never be a, uh, no my maths teacher said you'll never be a doctor um oh, wow. because i was getting, doing quite rubbish at that point i think i got mainly i got i was predicted straight c's for my gcse's and then i locked myself in my bedroom through my tv in the garage and got uh, a's and a stars and my my mm. dad was incredibly supportive and he said you know if you get if you get five A's, I'll buy you a new drum kit. And I said, "All right." So uh, <laughs> absolutely, he was one. It was probably the most disappointed father. He <laughs> was on that evening going, "All right, son, fine. Uh, I promised to buy you the drum kit." And uh, in all fairness, he did. He was he was incredible. He was really supportive. And then um, I went to college. I went to I went to a free school, a rough school, uh, but it was you know okay. I went to a very good sixth form, and uh, they were very good. I did all the nerdy A levels. Uh, did all the sciences and maths uh, again exactly the same I enjoyed the first bit of college got lazy in the middle and then locked myself in the garage a lot was locked myself in my room put my telly in the garage had posters all the walls uh, and I got through I think I got two I think at one point I thought I'm not gonna get to med school I'll do physics got into physics yeah. oh no I definitely did I, I got into physics at Bristol to do uh, astrophysics and uh, oh, wow. uh, I was sat there in a physics lesson when they were trying to explain to me how an engine worked and I walked out and just said, this is so boring. Uh, and I went to go see the um, careers, literally walked out the lesson, went to go talk to the careers bit person. Um, and they were really good. I uh, had to reset a couple of things, I think, at the end, but still got the grades for it. Did a gap year in, uh, worked as HCA in a surgical ward. Played bingo with some old people, uh, which was amazing. I honestly cannot put to words I but if the future medical students go do things like that as well, go work to an HCA. It was amazing. It was honestly one of the most amazing bits, and you can tell the doctors that have done that that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, went to Peninsula, yeah. which was my first. I, I, when I was selecting med schools, I decided I'd either go to Cardiff 
Aberdeen or Peninsula. Yeah. Honest to God, I don't wow. think I put much thought into those choices. Um, it's like each then, corner of the country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I don't, and you know what? I really don't know why I decided those things. Um, <laughs> I got into Cardiff and I got into Peninsula. And it was the year that... I don't know what put me off Cardiff. I think I just really liked Peninsula, Plymouth, actually. Uh, I went there, did mm. Plymouth, Plymouth Extra, Exeter, Torquay. Absolutely loved it. Didn't want to. Be, I wanted to be a paediatric haematologist from about the third year of medical school. Did uh, my elective in paediatric haematology in New Zealand, which was an amazing experience, but made me not want to be a paediatric haematologist. Hmm. Um, yeah. It was really good, and I don't regret it. It was quite, you know, really fun. Went into F1, and I quite liked the culture of surgery. I quite liked the camaraderie, the teamwork, and I liked being able to see that things were fixed. Uh, now that's not always mm, the case, yeah. quite. You know, you, you see someone coming with a gallbladder problem, they leave without a gallbladder. Nine times out of ten, yeah. they're better. Um, yeah. I think I decided I want to be a surgeon around F1, middle of F1. Banged out MRCS, did uh, cardiothoracic surgery in Derryford in Plymouth, which made me more certain of it. Did F2, uh, did uh, my MRCS then. Did a gap year and did a, another gap year in a teaching fellow in Torquay. Uh, which is with a lovely little DGH, got a few projects under my belt, core training in Taunton, where I met, where I met Paul, mm. it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, and then I did, my second job was urology, and I just met the nicest people, met the most amazing patients, the best toys, the widest variety in case case mix and patients. Uh, and I felt like that's what I wanted to do. Um, it's quite interesting explaining to <laughs> explaining to your friends when you say, "What do you want? What surgery wants you to do?" And, uh, <laughs> yeah. like, I want to be a penis surgeon. It's the way forward. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, explaining all the reasons why it was great. You know, it's brilliant. Uh, then I've done that, that... Of a research fellow in Exeter. I've worked with one of the nicest teams I've worked with in my life. Uh, got a few projects under my belt with the British Association of Urologists. A few papers, and I'm starting ST3 in Derford on Wednesday. Pretty much. Congratulations! Congratulations! Yeah, that 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 reminds me of a funny story. Mm -hmm. So, at the end of um, final year med school, you kind of have to pick and rank your jobs. Mm -hmm. And obviously, kind of grew up, studied in London. I want to stay in London. And then that fateful night when I ended up in Coventry, I refused to accept, you know, my my fate. So I was rushing to pick all the jobs, and I wanted to do urology as a foundation. Um, (laughs) And in the rush of things, I picked genital urinary medicine, completely oblivious <laughs> to the genital and the medicine, thinking urinary meant urology, submitted it. And the next day I woke up, I got my first ranking and I was like, you know, genital urinary medicine is gum. It's got nothing to do with urology. You know, you're going to be in a clinic with SDIs. And I just, you know, his face just dropped and he was like, he's looking forward you know to what? urology. Gum is Wait, a very good job. It's... I'd love to have done gum. Gum would have been great. So is that, that's quite a Mate, good job to get in. Yeah. Gum's gum was, was like... It's one of the competitive <laughs> training schemes in the country, yeah. Yeah, and I know why. It's super chill back. It's, you know, half the week I spent, you know, looking after STIs and other heart, you know, <laughs> HIV patients, infectious diseases. Super chill back. Everyone's super cool. Um... But yeah, it's a funny story. I always kind of remember every time someone talks about urology. <laughs> John, I was going to ask, um, for all the aspiring urologists that are through foundation training, perhaps F1, F2, mm-hmm. what can they do to kind of help get a urology training post? Because it is competitive. What tips can you give to those individuals? Uh, make friends with urologists. Um, <laughs> so, 
Montasha likes to tell this story and she'll probably tell it better than I. So when she was on a urology job, I, I, I will do anything to procrastinate from writing my papers, literally anything. And the number one thing is trying to teach med students. And it was Wednesday afternoon. I said, do you want to go do some teaching to her? who was a brand new med student I'd not met before and a couple of other students, to which she said that they had sports on a Wednesday afternoon. And I just told her, well, I wouldn't put it to you. I know that no one actually did sports on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, and then she, 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 so they went home and then she came back and said, I'd quite like to do an audit. And she banged out an audit, which we need to round up in the next couple of days, actually. Um, and then mm. after that, I said, we're not going to get to finish this audit at the moment, but do you want to get involved in this teaching project? <laughs> Uh, which became Smile. <laughs> so she did quite well at ah. that. And uh, from that, whenever I see anything urologically aimed at students, I email her about, and she's got a few papers out of it, like a few prizes and things here and there from uh, ones from the Royal College of Surgeons, uh, the British Association of Urologists, which is quite good. It's quite trick. So I, would al I always tell students to keep their minds open as a student because you don't want to miss out on things. Mm. I don't, I, like I said, if I'd only wanted to be a paediatric hematologist, I, I, I probably did miss out on some opportunities later on in med school. But if you think about things, so where can I get prizes? How can I show initiative? How can I get involved with audits? All of those questions can be answered by talking to urologists or urology trainees as well. So that's probably my biggest bit of advice to people who want to do it. My biggest advice this is a bit slightly off topic from what you said, but my biggest piece of advice to medical students or things I could go back and say to myself mm. would be um, throughout your training, throughout your F1, throughout your specialty training, you will work very hard and you will end up sacrificing some things. And always think about the things that you are willing to sacrifice on the things that you aren't. And I don't know, for me, I used to be a big fitness buff and I've lost a lot of that now. However, I was refused, I refused to lose, lose Devon. I refused to not live with my girlfriend for as long as I could, at least through training. Uh, and I mm -hmm. regret that for a second. And the best example, I've heard, and that doesn't change. And one of my mates is an ST. He's nearly finished. Well, he's got his consultant job now. Even oh, when wow. he's on call and he can work from, when you're on call for urology, most of the time, you can do it from home. And he would always leave when he was on call and get home for seven o'clock to, to put his daughter in the bath and do her bedtime stuff. And he always did that and was never prepared to sacrifice it unless it was obviously an emergency. And I just thought that was absolutely fantastic and something that you do need to be very aware of for your own you know, mental health, I think that's quite important. I think it's, it's, it's the, all the other stuff around it which kind of makes it mm. worthwhile for us to hear. And it's always interesting to kind of hear it from people that are senior to us there's ever so much advice we can give in kind of the very very early of our careers um, but definitely sound advice and that kind of takes us on to Paul <laughs> um, who who still uh, I don't know if he's still interested in fitness um, kind of tell us about your journey how did you kind of go into the opposite end of the spectrum into orthopedic and what does a teaching fellow mean there's a lot of positions within the NHS and sometimes yeah. people do get a bit confused. Um, so kind of share that journey with us. Yeah, sure. Uh, in terms of in terms of how I started, so I um, I was much more interested in humanities when I was at school, um, and mm. I was certainly heading. You know, I was thinking I was going to go to university and read history or geography or something like that. And uh, and then I started watching House um, <laughs> when I was born. <laughs> and I, I thought, oh, this, this looks, uh, you know looks like something I might be interested in and um, but then really I I, um, I changed my mind and and decided to pursue a career in medicine when I um, so I, I did a lot of youth work when I was a teenager and um, mm. and one of the things I fell into doing that was um, 
a charity called Over the Wall, which was actually one of the charities that we ended up supporting with Smile yeah. and uh, and raising money for. And uh, and so when I was sort of 17, 18, I, um, uh, I went away to do some summer camps um, with them and Over the Wall um, are a fantastic charity that... Uh, that support kids with terminal illnesses and life-limiting conditions, and uh, and run um, sort of week-long uh, holiday camps for them to to basically go off and do loads of cool activities that uh, you or I might not think twice about being able to do, like archery and kayaking and horse riding and things. Mm. Um, yeah. But doing it in a safe uh, environment where they've got lots of medical, you know, medical uh, people on site to to help them out. And, uh, and I kind of just fell into that through youth work and, uh, and it was such an incredible experience that, uh, um, I, I decided to change everything and, um, uh, and, and try and get into medicine, uh, which was a bit of an uphill battle because, uh, so I had to take a gap year. I was halfway through my, my AS levels. And, um, so my gap year was spent, uh, doing more A-levels in, uh, biology and chemistry uh and uh, and applying to medical school and uh i was lucky enough that i decided i wanted to go to london um i'm not quite sure exactly why now except that it seemed like a, a cool place to be um but i grew up in deepest darkest somerset so uh you know i didn't really oh, wow. have much experience of it um and uh, yeah i was lucky enough that that uh, kings let me in and uh yeah from there i just uh, I, I just really uh, was fascinated by it uh, it was always surgery for me. Um, I I wasn't sure exactly what type of surgery I wanted to do, but uh, I just knew that whenever I was in theatre, uh, that was where I wanted to to be. I wanted to be helping out, and I wanted to really feel like I was sort of getting hands on, and uh, and I just really enjoyed the sort of teaching that you would get, you know, that you could only really get from, um, you know, actually getting hands-on and, um, uh, and and actually, you know, helping out with the surgery and assisting. Um, and then, oh, what happened after that? I graduated, uh, yeah, 2014, like we said, and uh, sort of I stayed in London. I, I did my F1 at King's and I went out to Eastbourne, um, mm. my F2, uh, and, I, uh, and then I went to Stanmore for my F3 before coming down here. Um, and so, I mean, working at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in Stanmore, that was a real sort of eye opener for me in terms of what flavour mm. of surgery I wanted to do. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and then I decided that uh, nearly 10 years in London was probably enough for me. And I was a, a, still a country bumpkin, so I wanted to uh, yeah. wanted to come back down to uh, the, the southwest. Uh, and uh, and I luckily managed to get a core training job over at Musgrove Park, which is where I met John. Um, Precious memories. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that was the real eye-opener for me. So so actually, you know, entering into what, the Meeting training, John or meeting the, John or the, the job? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, meeting John was, uh, was an eye-opener in, uh, in a lot of ways that, uh, <laughs> that uh, probably best not discussed. No, <laughs> um, no I... I I have to say, being part of a training program um, and and realizing, I think once you once you get at you get you can get stuck doing F threes and F fours and uh, and things like that, yeah. and uh, and a lot of people do that, and uh, I, I think 
I didn't realize at the time that life gets a lot better once you get onto a training program and then people start becoming invested in your future and start actually, you know, really taking it seriously that, that you're, you're training. Um, and so that was, that was great for me because, uh, I was, mm. um, a little bit disillusioned with medicine by the time I'd sort of finished my, my F3. Um, and mm. I was just a bit fed up of being a foundation doctor really. Uh, and actually, you know, taking on surgical training was just a, uh, a fantastic step forward and you realize that you need these challenges and, and if you're a, if you're a doctor you're already the sort of person who likes taking on challenges and likes learning new things and uh, uh, and so progressing through your career is sort of a good a good way to address that uh, and then so uh, unfortunately because of covid uh, the sd3 selection um, process for orthopedics this year in the southwest in particular was quite um uh, it was changed quite dramatically. Um, mm. and, uh, and so because of that, I, uh, I knew I wasn't very likely to get a Southwest, uh, SD3 number. Um, but I was very lucky, very fortunate to be offered a, a teaching fellow job by my, my current department, um, in the orthopedics at, uh, at Musgrove, um, which is, which is where I am now. So I, I now do, uh, well, it's meant to be 50% clinical and 50% teaching. I think it's probably more like 100% clinical than 50% teaching, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a great mix. And so and so a teaching fellow. Going back to your question, is um, uh, that there, we there's several of us at Musgrove, and some of us are sort of registrar level, um, and and some of the other guys are SHO level, so they've just finished their foundation um, placements and are now taking a year in between. Um, starting their sort of core training in medicine or surgery or whatever um, to uh, to do some teaching uh, as well as getting some clinical experience. So uh, it's basically, it's almost like a, a year out of training, um, either as an F3 mm -hmm. or as a, you know, sort of a, I, say, I suppose, SD3 equivalent, which is what my, my post is, um, where you can get clinical exposure at the level hopefully that you that you need to be progressing so for instance for me i you know i've made the step up now from being an sho to being on the reg rotor uh and to sort of making mm. registrar level decisions which uh which is exactly what you need in order to progress um to the next stage uh and then also to be getting a lot of exposure to teaching uh, and to be sort of passing on what you've learned to, to the next generation of doctors, which is uh, something that I've always found really rewarding. And I, I'm certainly very grateful mm. to be given that opportunity. Mm, definitely. Um, and it kind of brings me on to the next question, similar to John. Orthopedics still is very competitive and a lot of people kind of throughout med school, whenever you speak to them, they're on the surgery. It's always orthopedics, orthopedics. Um, <laughs> Why? What advice would you give to people that want to pursue orthopedics? How do they kind of get a competitive portfolio? How do they kind of get involved in theatres? Because it is a bit difficult at times, particularly during the current situation. So what advice can you impart to those individuals? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, so um, I, I think I think the, the answer to why is um, is it, fairly easy. And uh, I think the same is true when you when you ask people from most specialties. And it's kind of what who who do you want to spend you know the majority of your life um uh you know being around all the time um mm. and uh and, and for me that was orthopods um <laughs> you know they're a lot of fun uh they work hard but um uh but and also in terms of the actual job itself it's a very 
you may not think it, but it's a very cerebral job. It, it, it requires a lot of thinking, a lot of planning um, and, uh, you know, a good understanding of physics and mechanics. And uh, uh, plus you get to play with a lot of cool kit. Uh, yeah. so there's all sorts of things. Um, and, and one of the things that I always say to the students when I'm teaching them is that uh, you have such a huge variety in patients as well. Um, you know, in, in one day I can do two theatre lists and I can be uh, doing a, you know, a, a really specialist paediatric um, case with a, you know, a toddler for um, DDH. Or I say doing, you know, very much assisting with yeah. um, something super specialised like that. Um, and then, you know, in the afternoon, you can be, you know, doing some DHSs or uh, gamma nails on, you know, a hundred year old patient. Um, and uh, and the same is true in terms of the type of surgery that you want. So, you, you know, you can do a, a, a complex fiddly hand surgery um, mm-hmm. or you can go into, you know, soft tissue knee and sports injuries or you can go down the trauma route and, uh, you know, be attending trauma calls all the time at a major trauma center um there's all sorts of things that you can do with it and that that's you know those are just some of the reasons why i love orthopedics um in terms of advice for uh for people john john's advice is is absolutely true um get stuck in get to know the people that you're going to be working with and and listen to what they have to say because whatever you're you're taught at at medical school and you you know the, the knowledge that you get given there in terms of your career is often out of date and it's often really um, difficult to pick through the relevance of, uh, of what it is that you're given. Um, and, and so I would say very much get to know the trainees, um, take advice from them uh, and they really will want to help you out. You know, it, it's, it's so rewarding to um, be asked, uh, you know, to, to be asked advice uh, from, you know, people who, uh, are trying to get to the position that you're in, um, so you know never never worry about that. Orthopedics is is competitive, but uh, there's lots of things that you can do to to set yourself apart. Um, get your courses in early, um, you know, do some audits, do some do some projects wherever you can. Fire off emails to people in you know the department that you're working at, or you know find out who's good for getting case reports and uh, and papers published. Mm-hmm. Um, and every department will have someone who is, you know, who's good at that. And just try and uh, ride on their coattails a bit, and uh, and help, you know, help them. And in return, they will, uh, they they will almost certainly help you. And all you need is, you know, at your stage, if you're, you know, if, if you're sort of a foundation doctor applying for core training, then you can, um, then you just need, you know, one or two papers or. Um, a few good audits in the subject of your choice, and uh, um, and that will really help you out. Uh, and and just you know, just know the know the subject, know what it is that you're getting yourself into, and and, and be realistic with yourself that um, if you think that the lifestyle and the the workload and um, uh, and the busyness of, of of the specialty aren't for you, then uh, really just. Um, be honest with yourself because the worst thing that you can do is get halfway through your career and realise that you've made a made a big mistake yeah. and that you'd be happier off, happier doing something else. But definitely yeah. do that last bit more. Sound advice. Um, guys, before we look to wrap up, what I'd like you to both to do is reflect over sort of your career up till today and I'd like you to pick one moment, right, till today, up to today, that's made you think, this is why I chose the job that I do or the field that I'm in 
something that's a real high point to share with our audience because sometimes I think as doctors we've got a sort of a tendency to whinge a little bit but I think we forget to share the moments that are really positive and make us think yes this is why I chose to become a doctor um so if you guys could share one moment each that's a that's a fantastic point I'm really glad that you uh yeah. that you highlight that and I think that you, you know you've, you've done a really really um uh great thing setting this podcast up and uh, and it and it you know I'm Thanks. all the best with it and and if you can continue to highlight important things like that because doctors do you know they we Winch. we often are seen as whingers and yes we work very hard <laughs> and, yes, and, and you know yes it's a challenging life and yes you you may get home late and have to start early and um and do all these things but there's a good reason for that and you won't be a good doctor unless you uh, uh unless you're willing to do that and really really willing to go the extra mile mm. and um and and also there's so many incredible opportunities that you're given as a doctor and 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 so many reasons why it's the best job in the world um, so if you need to highlight that as, your, as part of your platform, yeah, then, uh, you know, more power to you. No, nothing worth having easy. I know that sounds really... It's cheesy, but true. It's cheesy, but true. Mm. I, I don't regret doing it for... I don't re- regret going into medicine, for, for a, like, seriously, for a second. It was definitely the right choice. There is, with the rise of social media, there is a lot more, I call it medical whinge. Like you can put me <laughs> A lot of people are <laughs> articulate about it, but... You don't you don't hear people focus on the good things, and that's a real shame. Um, coming back to your question, can I think of it? It's really difficult to think of one moment. Um, yeah, I could t- I could tell you one of mine when yeah, I was at, when I was at Stanmore. Yeah. Um, I uh, I looked after a kid oh, yeah. for pretty much the entire year that I was there with um, Gorham Stout disease, uh, which is also known as vanishing bone disease, which is an extremely rare condition, um, and. Uh, just, I think, have, look, having uh, having the sort of responsibility and um, the um, the real continuity of of looking after a patient from you know he was one of the first patients I saw when I got to Stanmore and uh, uh, and, I, and I saw him again just before I left um, and you know over months and months that he was in hospital um, and attending outpatients and having scans and uh, having surgery ultimately. Uh, and really, I think having that that continuity and follow, following that through and seeing him grow and, uh, you know, really getting to know him and his family uh, was, was just something that you, you would never get that in any other job um, other than healthcare. It's a, it's a case, you know, that will stick with me for, for my whole career, my whole life. And, and I think will certainly influence and shape the way that I treat patients and the way that mm. I would I would I would want to treat um, patients and their families in the future. Um, I could pro- I'm trying to think of a deep. I mean, that I can't think of one as as clear as cut as that. I mean, setting up Smile was probably when watching the number of people come on that and working in a place where that was possible and they let us do that alongside our normal job was. I mean, that was amazing. That was such a nice feeling. I guess from a clinical standpoint, I mean, it's going to sound depressing, but I promise it isn't. Um, when I did my <laughs> medical jobs, you'd see I, I did a respiratory job, and for those who haven't done a respiratory job respiratory failure is often the natural I say natural is often the usual mode of death for a lot of patients um and I remember working with families and patients who you got on with you know they came in with their COPD exacerbations or pneumonia and it was their third or fourth time in and being able to give someone a good death um and being able to make sure that you supported the family and the doctors through that time and having patients who you sat there with their relative dying 
come and hug and say thank you for everything you've done um, in a way of saying, well, all, all we did was make sure that this person finished this life with dignity and respect uh, comfortably. Mm. Um, that's probably, they were, and that, that, I can't pinpoint one single moment because it, it was quite a frequent thing. But that was, yeah. I thought I could A, do quite well and really enjoyed doing and still try and do as much as I can on a surgical job um, when possible. Oh, I can do it. All right, I will be awesome. quiet after a sec. Okay, this is this is it. So uh, we had a patient. <laughs> my, my, this was um, this was my first week of core surgery, and yeah. um, we had a patient who I saw on the Wednesday. Who I mean, you know, for the medics, he came in with painless jaundice and weight loss and deranged LFTs, no medical problems whatsoever, uh, and I could feel a lump in his belly, and I was like, well, that's yeah. uh, Courvoisier's law. So uh, that's uh, so painless jaundice. Yeah. And palpable gallbladder is uh, is not gallstones; it's probably pancreatic cancer, and it was exactly that. He had disseminated cancer, oh, wow. and I got to know this chap. Yeah. Incredibly busy week, and I got to know this chap quite quickly, quite well. And we started talking. You know, I, I stayed late at work, started to talk about what, what he liked, and he was a avid Stephen King fan, and uh, so was I. Mm. And I, <laughs> yeah. he goes, "Oh, what shall I read?" And he's never read The Stand, which is. I'm um, speaking for both of us. I said probably both our favourite book. Or one of them, yeah. One of, yeah. So I brought him in the stand. And for those of you who don't know it, first of all, it's amazing. So read it. Secondly, it's about as thick as my hand. And he said, "Am I going to get through that book before I die?" And we both just sat oh, wow. there and uh, both nearly bought, you know, both nearly bored into tears. And I think he got most of the way through. He took it home. I know he didn't die in hospital, but I, I remember that getting a bond with someone at that point in their life. Is something that mm. they won't forget and the relatives around you won't forget and you yeah. forget. <laughs> I think you both highlight the connection we make with our patients, the relationships we form and the experiences and the impact we can have. Um, and you both highlight the fact that it's a it's something that no other job can actually give and money can't buy. I'm sometimes left a bit dumbfounded when I work alongside other colleagues and they tell me, oh, they were a financial consultant earning 250 and they left it to study medicine. I was like, wow. Um, yeah. When you ask them why, they, they they reiterate those points. This is a job that gives you a connection, an emotional connection, allows you to make an, a true impact. And every day and every patient is different. Um, thank you for sharing those two moments. I mean, that, I couldn't agree with you more. That is the most important thing. But don't get me wrong. If somebody out there wants to give Smile £250,000, it'd be more than welcome. <laughs> um, of course. But, um, <laughs> and scrubbed in. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's um, yeah, I, I don't regret it. No, awesome. definitely. It really is a pleasure um, and a privilege to kind of work as a medic. I want to thank you both for taking the time out of your busy schedules um, to kind of record um, with us. We've definitely learned a lot. Um, and I think it would be nice for a lot of the students that have benefited through Smile to get to know you guys a bit better. I'm sure they know you well already. Um, <laughs> How do they get in touch with you? If you're if you're all right with us kind of sharing those details, how could they get in touch with you? Um, it might be with training, Twitter? it might be through Med Ed. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's, how there's, do they find you? What's your handle? So we've got a Twitter handle is at lockdown underscore Med Ed. Um, I've got tw Twitter as Eurodoc27. What's your Twitter? Uh, I, I've locked myself out of my Twitter, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Instagram is another good way of doing it. Um, yeah. To be honest, Mum yeah. is better with these things than we are. And yeah. if the question's for us, uh, she will just fire them our way. Or... And, and, uh, and we've yeah. also got an email address, which we, uh, unfortunately, we've been very lapsed in uh, um, checking <laughs> at the moment. But I it's, um, it's smilelectures at gmail.com. Um, and we are going to be 
getting back on things soon. So uh, yeah, we'll get in touch. Sounds good. I think we've got a lot we'll of definitely... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, we're... You'll be try we're... try hard enough, and uh, you'll you'll get hold yeah. of us somehow. We're quite with Twitter. Yeah, I, f- I think we'll we'll link all of those below, and then everyone can try their luck and see see if they can get a response. Yeah. <laughs> the, for all the listeners out there that did get in touch, do let us know which one worked, <laughs> so we can kind of push that through. Um, but it's been a massive pleasure for us. Um, thank you. It's been great. Thank you for having us. Definitely, and f- massive thank you to all our listeners as well. Thank you.